There's a bear case to what you've described. The bear case is if the federal government goes all in with a CBDC plus the, let's call it the Argentine or Chinese model of banning monetary competition, the end result could be a net lo- a massive net loss for, for privacy and for freedom relative to the system we have today. All right, folks, we are jumping in today with Ovik Roy. A little bit of housekeeping before we do it. Uh, I have, for those watching on YouTube, pretty bad lighting. I'm up in Ithaca right now, so apologies for the bad lighting. Also, Digital Asset Summit, Blockworks' flagship event is back in New York City, September 14th and 15th. You can go to our website, check out with code EMPIRE to get 10% off. Also, big shout out to our sponsors, Luca and Exodus. Check them out. More info about them in the show notes. Now, Ovik, let's jump into the conversation. I want to give a little bit of background and then we're going to dive into it. You are a hedge fund manager, an ex-policy advisor to Mitt Romney and a whole bunch of other politicians, uh, previously a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, and now the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. It's a bit of a mouthful. I think I got that right. Today, we're going to talk about um, CBDCs, stablecoins, broader case for Bitcoin. I thought we could start here. Jay Powell recently said, with a US CBDC, you wouldn't need stable coins, you wouldn't need cryptocurrencies, you wouldn't need Bitcoin. What do we think about that one? Well, it was, uh, it was a remarkable statement. I mean, it's not surprising in a sense. Obviously, a lot of people uh, uh, in, the, in the Fed and in the Treasury Department are deep skeptics of crypto and Bitcoin. So not surprising that he would say that in a sense, but it was still a pretty stark uh, condensation of a view that is really hard to square with with the facts. The idea that a CBDC would replace Bitcoin basically means you don't understand what Bitcoin is trying to do. Hmm. Tell me more. Well, I mean, those of us who who follow the space, obviously, you know, what what is the what is the purpose of, of Bitcoin? What what did Satoshi think the purpose, and what what was it being used for in the real world? Synthesizing all that. There's a couple things to, to highlight. One, uh, one is that uh, that the supply of Bitcoin is fixed, right? This is uh, something that uh, was of great concern to Satoshi that fiat currencies can be um, eroded. This was he's not he's not original in that concern. I mean, there have been a lot of people throughout history who've shared that concern. Certainly in our epoch, we could say that uh, von Mises and Hayek and some of the other Austrian economists. That's been obviously a big crit- criticism that they've had of fiat currencies. Uh, but but broadly speaking, this idea that, that that a big problem with fiat currencies or even just uh, non-fiat currencies, right? Speakies, you know, uh, uh, gold-based currencies could also be devalued through shaving the coins and other sorts of tricks uh, of the trade. But this is a big problem. Uh, what uh, Mises called, I think, the prince's uh, privilege, the princely privilege of eroding the currency. So this is something that a lot of people are concerned about. And obviously, if you if you looked at the monetary inflation of the last uh, 50 years, but particularly the last several years, the last 15 years since 2008, it's been pretty considerable. And while we haven't seen that necessarily reflect in consumer prices, that's obviously the monetary inflation is obviously a big concern of a lot of people. And that's why they like Bitcoin. And the other piece of it that uh, that we can, we'll obviously get into more in talking specifically about central bank digital currencies is that one of the big purposes of Bitcoin and, and most cryptocurrencies is the fact that they're uncensorable, permissionless, right? That you don't, you're not relying on a third party as your bank. And in particular, you can't be shut out of the financial system by a third party. 
that is an essential part of what makes Bitcoin have value. And uh, the opposite is true of, of a central bank digital currency. And, and, and for the life of me, you know, I, I get that Jay Powell, at least what I hear, what, what, what's reported in, in places like Blockworks and others, is, is that Jay is uh, very concerned that, um, boy, China is going to develop a CBDC and we can't be left behind by China. Wouldn't that be terrible? Um, you know, China is an authoritarian state, and the value of, of CBDCs for China is precisely to further their authoritarian ambitions over the monetary system. And the idea that we would be seeking to imitate China in this regard is, uh, is profoundly misguided. So if I'm hearing you right, then if you extend that thesis out, you're, you're basically saying that a CBDC is authoritarian money, which is why China is, is the world leader in developing it so far, if I'm extending your argument far enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally tweeted that uh, recently. I tweeted you know, that the CBDCs are authoritarian money, and they are. I mean, if you think about it, what is the value of a CBDC? And um, the, the the BIS uh, president, uh, you know, he 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 made this point very clearly in in a in a in a video or a press conference that was uh, that made the rounds on social media, you know, saying or Augustan, right? His name is Augustan, something or other. That that uh, you know, the, the the beauty of central bank digital currencies is that we'll have complete control over them. Right. The 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 use case that you hear a lot of people talk about as well, we can put out stimulus checks and they'll have an expiration date. You don't spend the money within 30 days that the money goes poof. Well, that's not the only thing you can do with a central bank digital currency. Right. If you've decided that a particular newspaper or a particular organization, uh, you don't like what they're uh, they're doing or what they're saying, you can cut them off from the financial system. We saw this recently with Apple, the pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong. Uh, the Chinese government, the PRC, central Chinese government, put their founder in prison. That didn't prevent Apple Daily from continuing on and publishing, right? All those people were still putting out the newspaper, even though they were all facing the threat of imprisonment. What finally got Apple Daily to shut down was the People's Republic of China shut down their ability to interact with the monetary system. They basically went to their banks and said, you can't do business with Apple Daily anymore. And once the banks couldn't do business with Apple Daily, Apple Daily couldn't pay their suppliers. And that basically meant within a week they were out of business. That is how Apple Daily got shut down, not by imprisoning their founders or by threatening other columnists or journalists at Apple Daily with, with jail time, it was by censoring their bank accounts. And, and that is an incredibly dangerous um, uh, power to put in the hands of a central bank. And that's not the only problem uh, with central bank digital currencies, but it's certainly one of the most important. I think um, the pushback to that argument, Ovik, is that in China, it, it almost makes sense that this is happening. Like they have a kind of blatantly authoritarian regime over there, very different form of politics. In the in the U.S., it right now I would say in 2021, it's tough to see something like that happening. So, do you see us? Do you see something like? Is that already happening? Am I missing something? Is this somewhere that it's not happening now, but you see things getting worse in the states? So it happens in five to ten years. Like, why is is this really a concern in the states? The history of government power is that if it is granted, it always ends up being used. I don't think we, if, if a country is around long enough and you grant a, a certain government agency or a government in general the power to do X, even if they don't do it at first, they eventually will, right? As soon as we granted um, 
the government the ability to expand the monetary supply. It, it didn't necessarily happen, you know, it happened right away, but it's, it's particularly been a dramatic increase in the money supply over the last 50 years, right? Um, as soon as we gave the, uh, the, gave the U.S. government the ability to institute a progressive income tax, originally the, the percentage, the tax rate in the progressive income tax was, I believe, 3%, and it only applied to people with incomes over a million dollars, if I'm recalling correctly. Don't hold me to that. But obviously right now we have a progressive income tax at the top rate of 39.6%. So every time you, you grant a, a power, it, it's not, I'm not a slippery slopist. You know, there are people who say, well, if you impose speed limits, eventually the speed limit will be zero. I'm not saying that. You know, you know there, is, there can be an equilibration or a, a stopping point of a particular policy. But when you give uh, the government the power to censor financial transactions, uh, that power is not going to be underused. And, and we can give a real-world example of this. In the Obama administration, there was a... Uh, an operation called Operation Choke Point, where the Department of Justice and the Treasury Department and others coordinated, uh, uh, pressured banks to not do business with legal businesses, gun manufacturers and others who were, we could say, politically disfavored businesses, but were legal businesses that had violated no laws. And, you know, once that came to light, it became controversial and was eventually shelved by the, the Trump administration, if not before, but all this to say that that was prior to a CBDC, right? And uh, the ability of a CBDC to be deployed to basically micromanage the economy at a level at which it has never been man- uh, micromanaged before, the Federal Reserve and thereby the federal government will have a window into every financial transaction you make, right? You go out to buy cornflakes, the Federal Reserve will know about it, Um uh, whatever's in your bank account or not. The Biden administration, actually, one of the things they're trying to do for, for their infrastructure bill to pay for it is to give the IRS the power to, to, to see instantly every financial transaction you make with your bank. And that's considered a, a real leap in uh, or an imp- intrusion on our privacy. Well, with the CBDC, uh, that game is over. I mean, the, the, they'll have that ability. And again, I, I want to emphasize that these aren't the only problems with the CBDC. Uh, to give another that was raised by uh, Randall Quarles, the, the vice chairman uh, uh, of the Fed, what do you do with uh, KYC? Like right now, the banks do the KYC for you, right? What happens when the federal government is your checking account and your savings account? And by the way, that's also going to be a huge threat to community banks, which serve a lot of underserved customers, let alone the big banks like Chase and B of A. You're going to wipe out a lot of those smaller banks for whom the, the demand deposit and checking account business is, is extremely important to their, to, their, to their operations, right? They can't exist, basically, without those operations. If the, if, if the Federal Reserve is now competing with community banks for being a, a place for your checking account and, and, and all that, that's, that's a big, you know, p- people talk about CBDCs as being about financial inclusion. It's the other way around. Actually, they'll wipe out a lot of organic local institutions that are really important to uh, serving people in their communities. And then all of a sudden, you've got the federal government doing all the KYC, saying, okay, what's, you know, we want all this sensitive information about you in order to prove that you're not a criminal. And that's going to be stored where? That's going to be stored in some federal government location that creates a central point for hackers to basically download the KYC information of every American, that is incredibly dangerous. So all that to say that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of problems with a CBDC, and, and we're only kind of scratching the surface about it. 
But what, what I found very interesting, uh, Jason, is that if, if you think about the crypto media, the crypto commentary, and, 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 and say, okay, what's been the, the response to a CBDC? It has not been as, uh, as oppositional or as, as maybe even strident as, as I've been sounding, right? It's been more, oh, isn't this cool? The, even the Federal Reserve thinks that blockchain is a good technology, and they're even trying to keep up with all of us hipsters with our, with our crypto wallets, and they're trying to create a CBDC. It's been almost a kind of like, isn't it neat that the Federal Reserve is trying to embrace this technology that, that we all think is very interesting? And there has not been uh, the scrutiny of how a CBDC is really antithetical to everything that the crypto community claims that it stands for. So I think I would push back a little bit. I am in the camp that I don't push back on something like a CBDC. I think a, I think CBDCs are horrible, right? I think I think you lose control of the money, you lose control of the people. And the argument that they are building these tools like CBDC so that if there's ever a crisis, we can disperse the money easier. It's bullshit, right? The real reason they're doing this is for surveillance and control. But it really feels inevitable to me that every currency will be be digital. There's not going to be a competition between digital and non-digital. Every currency will be digital. So it's kind of like, why fight it? I think we're going to have in the future a competition not of digital versus non-digital, we're going to have a competition of monetary policy. The way I see it is a CBDC is inevitable. Let's continue building things like Bitcoin, DeFi, Ethereum, because eventually people will vote based on the monetary policy, not on the technology. I think that that's, that's the way I view it. Yeah, I'd make three points in response. I think that's a fair point. I make three points in response. The first is that the U.S. dollar is already effectively digital. It's not like it's not a digital currency. I mean, when the Fed, you know, waves its magic wand and parks money in banks, that's, you know, they're not actually taking truckloads of $100 bills and shipping them. Back to up the Brinks truck? <laughs> no, they're, they're, yeah, they're, there's no helicopter dropping the money from the sky, literally, right? I mean, the money is actually flowing in bits and bytes to, to these financial institutions. So in that sense, uh, the U.S. dollar is digital. It's not based on a blockchain, but, but it is digital. Point number two is that you're, you're right to say that it's likely that, uh, that the, the blockchain will be used uh, by the issuers of national currencies in the future. Uh, and you could say that, well, that's, that's somewhat inevitable, uh, I'm, I'm not convinced it's inevitable for the reasons I've, I've described, but but let's let's ta let's let's just postulate that that countries will want to do this for the for because it's in their interest to, to maintain that control. Uh, it could have one of two effects. Uh, first effect could be very bullish for more permissionless uh, tokens like Bitcoin, where you say, well, if I don't if I if I care about my privacy and I no longer have the option of paper cash. Uh, then I'm going to be more interested in Bitcoin in the future, right? It creates actually a stronger case for decentralized money if your only alternative to that is a CBDC. Because right now, the one thing we can say about cash is relative to Bitcoin, cash is less traceable, right? The whole reason why drug dealers use suitcases full of cash is because uh, it's harder to trace than you know a, a blockchain transaction which theoretically can be de-anonymized, as we've, as we've learned. That's, that's sort of, you could say, the bull case for, for Bitcoin and, and other uh, tokens like Bitcoin. The flip side, though, is simultaneous to unrolling or, or launching a CBDC, uh, the, the, the U.S. government or another government could prohibit the interaction between their fiat currency and Bitcoin, where they could, they could basically 
make Coinbase's business, say, illegal, right, or Square or PayPal. It's hard because now all these these are well-capitalized companies. They can lobby Congress, lobby the government. But in theory, they could do that. Their control obviously would merely be in issuing a CDC, but the combination of issuing a CBDC and restricting the interaction between the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin by banning the exchange, as China has done, right? So that's, um, that is a threat that you have to t- keep in mind. That, that the, the, there's a bear case to what you've described. The bear case is if the federal government goes all in with a CBDC plus the, let's call it the Argentine or Chinese model of banning monetary competition, the end result could be a, net lo- a massive net loss for, for privacy and for freedom relative to the system we have today. When you look at what the state of the financial system looks like in the U.S. in five, ten years, is the Fed basically, there's like a login to the Fed. All consumers have a login to the Fed. And I might use Bank of America and Chase. And in and those are just the front ends on top of my like my Fed system. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out as, as, I, as the words come out of my mouth. But what, what does it actually look like? How is it different than today? If a CBDC were to emerge, it seems to me in the beginning, use the commercial banks as a front end at the very least, because those those banks would fight hard uh, to, to preserve their their business lines, and and so that would be the politi- politically the 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 easiest uh, a, a road to, to a CBDC. But once the CBDC is set up, you don't need the commercial banks anymore, and there will come a time, whether it's uh, you know a We've noticed, you know, we people your age, especially Jason, you've lived through a lot of crazy crises between 9/11 and the financial crisis and COVID. You know, every 10 years there's been something, right? What's the crisis of the future that leads the government to say, you know, what we've got to yank uh, these front ends off and have more direct control over all this because that's the only way we can ensure that the economic system is working the way it needs to to solve whatever crisis we're in, just as. A lot of the economic restrictions and personal restrictions that have been imposed during COVID, or some of which are of dubious constitutional standing, as the Supreme Court has ruled, but they've been deemed necessary to uh, protect us during the pandemic, right? The CDC is banning uh, evictions. Now, uh, last time I checked, that wasn't the CDC's uh, uh, department. Uh, that wasn't their bailiwick, but they've, they've taken it upon themselves to believe that they are in of, uh, of how apartments get rented in New York City and, and other places. So that's, uh, that's very interesting, um, uh, but it also shows that there is this mission during a crisis. And so once you've given that level of authority and power, you got to believe that there will come a point once it's entrenched, once they've gotten over the political opposition from the banks that would be worried about just this scenario – uh, uh, something like that could happen. I have an example from another um, uh, sector of the economy that, that I spent a lot of time in healthcare. This is one of the reasons you see, for example, private insurance companies are very uh, concerned about a public option, right? The advocates of a public option say, no, you know, it'll just be another editor among the constellation of insurance plans that you can choose from. There's nothing you have to worry about. It will just be a plan that, because it's run by the government, will have lower overhead and will be able to kind of dictate price to the marketplace, and that means it will be less expensive for consumers. Well, if that's true, private companies can't dictate prices to, to the marketplace. 
place, so they're going to be at a fundamental disadvantage, and eventually they'll go away. There are, there's a certain school of thought among advocates of the public option and its opponents, interestingly enough, that the reason to support a public option is that that's what we'll do. It will make private insurance obsolete, and then we'll have a system that's just purely public insurance. And for the people who support that kind of system, that's a feature, not a bug. But something similar is going on here, the single-payer or public option version of money, where if the Fed is all of a sudden has the ability to compete with community banks and, and other commercial banks, uh, eventually it will. The CDC's uh, dictating the housing policies almost reminds me a little bit of um, the social media companies dictating, uh, you know, the political side of things, right? When when Trump got kicked off things like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest. And I guess you could see like you've got the 9-11 crisis, which leads to a lot of oversight on mm-hmm. privacy. Patriot Act and things like that. Mm-hmm. Things like the Patriot Act. Yeah, exactly. 2008, 2009. Then we have, you know, COVID, uh, which... You know, we don't have to get into that right now, but you could see a crisis in maybe another political crisis in something like 10 years where you have complete opposition from one party, the ruling party, towards the other party. And if the Fed, if all the money was holed up with the Fed with a CBDC, you could see something like instead of AWS shutting down apps that support Trump or social media sites shutting down Trump, you could see something like the Fed shutting off the bank accounts of those Absolutely. companies. Absolutely. This is my point about the, the Apple Daily and uh, Operation Choke Point during the Obama administration, which literally tried to do that, right? Tried to actually uh, serve legal business that were just doing things that uh, the Obama administration didn't like on a moral or philosophical level. And uh, and that's a, that's a, you know, that is something that we ought to be concerned about. And, and it's, it's not just about the, the political piece of it in the sense of like one side politically being disfavored is that, that is concerning to me and you know I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't want censorship in, in that sense but it also really matters if you think about it from a standpoint of uh, you know if the if, if we're if we're sold seats in part because uh, some of the supporters of CBDCs believe that it will be pro inclusion right that uh, that you'll have a more inclusive banking system if everybody has a bank account at the Fed um, that's not true because the KYC that you'll have to do at a centralized level will be just as cumbersome, if not more, for low-income individuals than the system we have today. And, and what we should be doing, actually, is, is having an, an incredible competence among different types of institutions to serve the low-income population. And just to give one example that's been somewhat in the, in the, in the crypto news recently, right, the, the whole El Salvador uh, situation where you have Jack Mollers and others running, you know, run, going out there and, and Bitcoin Beach and the people there who are really serving a very low-income population and figuring out ways to make the transaction costs of, of, of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network work for that population. And that's not something the Federal Reserve would be capable of doing, certainly not at the speed that we see in the private sector. There's, there's, there's kind of three problems going on here. There's a monetary problem, there's a privacy problem, and there's a technology problem. What is the perfect level of having private companies come in here, right? Because you could, like, do we make Facebook's DM the, the stable coin of the world? Probably not. Do we have everyone move into Bitcoin? Honestly, probably not right now. So like, what is the right equilibrium here? And, and where, and I guess the better question is like, how should private companies tie in to public work on, on, on money. This emerging constellation of, of stable coins that are out there. And 
for all the controversy around stable coins, they, they have up to this point uh, been very liquid, very large parts of the ecosystem. They have functioned. There has not been a, uh, a break the buck type scenario with stable coins as of yet. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen in the future, but so far that hasn't happened uh, despite a lot of volatility in crypto. So I think that's encouraging. The question is how do you uh, use stable coins to provide functionality much of the functionality at least Federal Reserve seeks with the CBDC. You wouldn't get all the functionality in terms of the control and the surveillance. But in if, if the goal is to have a digital currency, a digital version of the U.S. dollar that can be transacted across speed of light, we already have that. So the question is, how do you ensure that the stable coins that we any others that may emerge in the future do provide the functionality of digital cash, meaning that the, the, their value is, is pegged to the dollar and it's there, and, ha and has that utility much like a money market fund has today. You can have a regular auditing and a, and a, and a regulation of the reserves of those uh, stablecoin issuers, and Circle obviously has been, you know, at the forefront of trying to be proactive in this regard. But they don't have to be the only one. You, you know, you could you could bring into a U.S. regulatory umbrella anyone who wants to be part of that umbrella and say, look. These are, uh, the, these are the coins that, like money market funds, have this kind of reserve, and, and we have basically this window into their reserves that anyone can look at and say, we're comfortable with that, whether it's uh, T-bills or, or anything else. And that could be a way to, and, and some people think it's scandalous, the free banking era of the, of the 19th century. But this could be, in a sense, a new and improved version of the free banking era. The, the problem with the free banking era of the 19th century is you had all these banks that could issue notes that resembled dollars, but you know if those banks had the reserves to, to support the value of the notes that they were issuing. In this case, through a money market fund regulatory structure, you could have more confidence uh, in, in the structure of the reserve assets for those stablecoin issuers. And just to be clear, you know, we've had in the past with market funds, right? This happened, natural crisis this happened last year during COVID, where some of the uh, commercial paper that the money market uh, funds held basically collapsed overnight in a, in a kind of illiquid, you know, a kind of a run-on-the-bank illiquidity-type situation. And that was a concern. And, and, and so market funds aren't regulatorily perfect. Still things to improve about the way they're structured. But money market funds are very widely used and, and generally speaking, aren't very controversial. There are people saying abolish money market funds. Some are. But, uh, but, but I think the, the, the place of money market funds in our financial ecosystem is reasonably stable. Uh, and so it just seems to me that if we use that mental framework to think about stablecoins, we could get a lot of the way there. You're this biotech hedge fund manager who got pulled down uh, the Bitcoin and crypto rabbit hole. And just based on this conversation, you've you've gone pretty deep. So I think it would be helpful. Can you actually zoom out from the CBDC conversation and give us your overarching thesis for Bitcoin? My background is I went to MIT, was, uh, was my major was in molecular biology, then I went to med school at Yale, and then I got recruited by a then-unknown hedge fund called Bain Capital, or uh, investment fund called Bain Capital, to help them um, invest in healthcare companies, biotech companies in particular, a long-short equity hedge fund. So I spent the next dozen years of my life on Wall Street as, as a hedge fund investor and manager uh, it focused on biotech and pharmaceuticals, and uh, that taught me a bunch of things. Uh, you know, the volatility of Bitcoin is pretty same as the volatility of biotech, so I, I was never scared off by the volatility. But obviously, as a as a portfolio manager, you come to really appreciate the economic picture of the Fed, uh, the Fed's uh, uh, the pronouncements and actions. And then we had the financial crisis, which obviously uh, led to a, me and other, a lot of other people thinking about 
uh, you know, the fiscal crisis, not just in the U.S., but in, in, the, in, in the periphery of the Euro, Eurozone and things like that. And what ended up happening to me is uh, Mitt Romney and his team, when he was president the second time in 2012, asked me to help uh, design his health reform plan uh, for the 2012 presidential election. And as many people know, Mitt Romney was the founder of Bain Capital. That experience of, of solving the public policy debates around around healthcare reform, I, I was looking at my Bloomberg's 2008 and thinking, look, we're, we're worse off than because there's no bigger country that can bail us out if we, if we go in the tank. And, the, and the, the driver of our debt and deficit situation is healthcare policy. So I became intensely interested in how we solve our deficit problem by solving our health care problem. Because at the end of the day, we cannot solve our debt and deficit problem without uh, arresting the growth of health care spending. Public health care spending grows at a faster rate than GDP growth, which means it grows at a faster rate than tax revenues. So we're never going to catch up. How do we do that? And how do we do that in a way that is politically viable, that can get six in the Senate, so long as we've got a filibuster in the Senate? You've got to be able to do it in a partisan way. You've got to be able to do it in a way that Democrats can be comfortable, vulnerable, and that Americans feel is not a blank check for, for the government, right? So how do, you, how do you solve all those problems? It's a, it's a real engineering conundrum. And, and I'd been following it from the beginning because I had friends through an economics committee who had been uh, short housing in 2008 who were all over Bitcoin when, when, uh, when it was first described by Satoshi or whoever Satoshi is. And they you know, bending my ear about it from the beginning, but I'm just like, I don't have time to figure out how to run a node or build my own. This is just too complicated. I'll figure it out later. I, so I kept my eye on it, but was was sort of from a distance. And then when uh, the Mt. Gox uh, hack happened and Bitcoin went from whatever it was, like 1,200 to 300, I'm like, okay, this is my entry point. I've got to, if I don't look out, then, you know, then blame on, shame on me for not, uh, for not taking advantage of the unity. So I really uh, forced myself to take a closer look. At that time, there were some new crypto exchanges started to emerge in the in the you know quasi aftermath of, of so I started to to use those to to, to build a position, and um, it was a small position. I'm just like, well, let me put a uh, you know a, kind of a 10% portfolio position for myself in it, and um, uh, uh, obviously if you did the, if you did that in the, in that time uh, period, you ended up taking over more of your portfolio. So I had to pay more attention to it over time, and obviously was always following it from the standpoint point of uh, fiscal and monetary, the fiscal monetary rations first and foremost. I wouldn't call myself a true maximalist I, um, that I think there's there's value in in other uh, crypto ecosystems, but but I certainly think that the most so socially and economically important uh, function of crypto is is this element of competing with fiat currency. So many people have talked about in the past. Hmm. How has your thesis for Bitcoin changed over time? One of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was the potential of Bitcoin to um, to reduce the cost of money. The 2 to 3% that Visa and MasterCard and Amex take out of our credit card transactions, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, if we could shave something off of that? That could create profound efficiencies for the economy. Uh, that uh, that at least up to this point has not been the use case of, of Bitcoin, and not merely because of, of Bitcoin transaction costs. What I think is not always fully appreciated is that the transaction cost of Bitcoin is not the actual transaction fees on the blockchain. The transaction cost of Bitcoin are the little gains liabilities you incur every time you buy and sell it uh, under the U.S. tax regime and under many uh, countries' tax regimes. Not every single country, obviously. But under many, you're gonna if you if you buy that cup of coffee with your Bitcoin, you're gonna have to file a the IRS. 
that obviously creates an enormous amount of friction for the use of, of Bitcoin as a substitute for cash in everyday transactions. And, and I think as long as the tax regime we have stays in place, that's going to be true. So I think as a medium of exchange, the use case for many cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included, is going to be limited, at least in the U.S. Obviously, you live in El Salvador where it's legal tender. It's a, it's a different situation. But in the U.S., that friction is going to continue to be a persistent problem. On the other hand, what I think we're starting to see, and if Bitcoin gets to where its uh, market value is comparable to gold in that $10 trillion range in the future right now, it's, what, about 600 650 uh, uh, or more, like $700 billion today as we're talking, then uh, that that relates to this whole fiscal monetary thesis we were talking about before, right? That right now we have a situation where we have massive monetary inflation. A lot of that monetary inflation is not being in consumer prices because that, that money is being parked at, at banks where uh, the Federal uh, Reserve is paying an interest rate for banks to hold their money with the Fed. You know, I think you're going to get to a point, I think there's to which we're seeing this from, from the Paul Tudor Joneses and the Ray Dalios who are making this argument. They're not the only ones, right? That to, that there is a portfolio allocation that is going to hard money assets like Bitcoin, like gold, that continue as monetary inflation continues to be a persistent problem. Because we're not solving our debt deficit problems, right? The debt's only going higher, particularly over the, the, the various fiscal initiatives over the last 12 months that, that we've seen in Congress. The debt continues to go up. Interest cost on the debt continues to go up. You're going to see more monetary inflation. You're going to see more people. The share of, of, of Treasury notes that are being bought by foreign institutions has declined from 40% to 30% over 10 years, whereas the share purchased by Reserve has gone from like 10 to 20%. So basically, the entire decline in uh, in ownership by foreigners of, of treasury bonds is being soaked up by the Fed. Um, as the debt goes gets bigger and bigger, that continues, right? So if my thesis was, uh, you know, uh, half a decade ago or more, that Bitcoin could could compete with Visa, that isn't my thesis anymore. What it is today is that it could it it will compete with gold and, in particular, treasury bonds. I don't think that is uh, that is a, as deep of a concern for uh, for senior officials in Washington who think that Bitcoin has no value at all. It's basically a fraud. And that thing is, you you see a lot of people in the crypto community say, well, wait, the the, the government's got to ban Bitcoin because they're going to see that it's a threat to the dollar and a threat to the the Fed. But that doesn't think that Bitcoin is a threat to the Fed. So I think the, the hopeful case for, for crypto in that sense, uh, if I'm right, by the time uh, the, the Fed and the Treasury Department believe that Bitcoin is a legitimate threat to the, the Treasury bond, the crypto ecosystem will be sufficiently entrenched that it will be politically uh, impossible to dislodge. Imagine a world in which uh, Coinbase is not the only uh, big uh, crypto company in, in the stock market. Right? We've got a point where a good chunk of the market cap of the NASDAQ or the S&P uh, are crypto-based companies. It becomes a lot harder to say we're just going to wipe out that. It reminds me of a Cameron Winklevoss tweet after El Salvador um, made Bitcoin legal tender, which said, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, you used to have to ban Bitcoin to shut down Bitcoin. You used to have to... Uh, ban a company. Now you have to ban a country, something along those lines. And yeah, I mean, it seems every single time that a bank offers Bitcoin to their financial advisors, to their private wealth management customers, every time a Paul Tudor Jones buys it, every time an endowment 
buys Bitcoin, every time a Coinbase-like company goes public, it makes it harder and harder for this proverbial big boss to shut down Bitcoin, right? I mean, obviously, there's going to be, um, you know, policies that are developed and things like that. There's a lot of talk out there about about various things. As long as you can still exchange fiat for, for crypto and that some basic ability to invest in the crypto space continues and more and more companies go public, you know, if, if Kraken goes public next year, as they say they, they want to, for example, if other businesses go public, you know, we're seeing backed, I think, uh, you know, do a reverse merger, a SPAC to, to get into the market. More and more of these companies go public, then that creates an economic constituency for crypto. And and leaving aside the, the raw politics of it, to, to think about it just from a more merit-based system, you know, if if we're right, if people like me are right, people like you as well, I think, and I don't want to put in your mouth, but if people like us who believe that monetary inflation is a problem, that it's a problem for ordinary people, when there's massive inflation, the people who already have wealth, who own their homes, who have stock portfolios, they do really because that's where inflation goes. It goes to invest assets, as we've seen over the last 15 years. The people who are harmed by inflation are the people who, for, who, who make $20,000 a year, people who are retired on a fixed income, so for whom when their price of food goes up, when their price of gas goes up, it affects their ability to pay for others. If we are not going to do the things that we really need to do, then again, you can take the Argentine approach, which is to ban uh, the exchange, you know, have capital controls to ban the ability of people to exchange U.S. dollars for Bitcoin or something else. One way to do it, protect vulnerable people. What you have to do is actually arrest inflation. And if you can't do it directly by the problems that we've described, these harder problems of entitlement spending and the like, then what you need to do is offer those individuals an alternative way to protect their value, such as having the equivalent of a bank account, coin, or some other cryptocurrency will hold its value in an inflationary environment. But uh, if we want to protect those on fixed incomes, those people on lower incomes from the ravages of inflation, and we want to think about the example of the 1970s in that regard, then we really do want to have an alternative available to those individuals. And I think the more people in our ecosystem who are focused on that problem, the more compelling of a case we'll have when the time comes when, when people in Washington do view Bitcoin as a threat to, to, the, to the Treasury bond. I think the last question I have for you before um, we can flip the interview uh, and you can ask me one question is, is inflation, not is inflation here to stay, but is there, if you were a policymaker, right, you've spent a lot of time behind the scenes with policymakers and with the politicians who are making the rules. Is there anything that you would do right now to try to pull back inflation or is inflation coming and, and we're kind of screwed? We're uh, coming up on uh, the 50th anniversary of Nixon's withdrawal from the Bretton Woods Agreement. And what's interesting about that period of time is, is the, the crisis that led to Nixon pulling out of Bretton Woods was trade imbalances primarily, not as much fiscal imbalances. There were fiscal imbalances back then. There was monetary inflation. But the big issue was that the Bretton Woods price pegs were assigned in 1944, and between 1944 and 1971, there was this massive growth in the post-war economy, particularly in West Germany and Japan, and that created a big problem for the U.S. in terms of its balance of payments, and that was one of the reasons why the gold peg was hard to maintain in the, the 1960s and 1970s. The situation's a little different now. It's not so much the trade imbalances that are that are being uh, our problems, but the fiscal imbalances, the runaway. If you want to limit monetary inflation, that's the problem you have to solve. Here's an important counterargument that we have to address that maybe many of your listeners are interested in, which is, first of all, we haven't seen CPI growth, right? We, we've had this pretty low inflation environment 
over the last uh, several decades, despite the monetary inflation. So there are people who argue that, well, you know, the velocity of money is going to decline, that, that monetary inflation and, and consumer prices are not really as connected as they used to be, and that that will continue to be true, and therefore we have to worry about consumer prices in that regard. And some people will point Japan, which has had uh, you know, an over 200% debt-to-GDP ratio, a fair amount of monetary inflation, but low consumer inflation at the same time. Uh, but there are importance between Japan and the U.S., so we can't, we can't assume that the U.S. will follow the path of Japan. To, the, to, to, to answer your original question, which I think is to the person who's maybe, or maybe a different version of your question, is the person who's not concerned about monetization, the person who says, you know what, I don't think it's a big deal that we've doubled the money supply in the last, uh, you know, X year, period of years, because look, the CPI has been stable, so I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I, I, I don't think that is going to be the case long term. I think long term, the money that has been flowing to financial institutions will eventually uh, filter into consumer prices. And in the meantime, it has flown to investable assets, which has massively increased income inequality, right? The value of of, of the assets that rich people hold, like stocks and venture capital and real estate, has skyrocketed, whereas the, the value of things that ordinary people hold is not, that's a huge problem. That's created massive disparities of wealth and income in the United States. That's not sustainable either. So we do have to address those problems by getting the monetary situation under control and, and starting to let interest rates rise. Um, I know I've given a kind of a long question, but maybe the first step would be to get some intellectual diversity uh, in the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. I think that's part of the problem right now where we have, I think there hasn't been, how long has it been since there's been a vote where like there's been even a dissenting to, uh, on the FOMC? I mean, you know, we, we, we want to have more diversity of opinion. I think a, a lot of people didn't like Judy Shelton, but I think having Judy Shelton there would have at least created a little more brown policy than we're having right now. I think that would be step one, because whatever your opinion is of what the Fed is doing, let's have some contrary viewpoints up there so that we can actually air out these debates in a way that we're not doing today. And then I think uh, that can at least help us evaluate more clearly at the policymaking level whether we're doing the right. Oh, this has been fascinating. Um, we always get to wrap it up uh, by flipping the interview. So if you want to if you want to uh, take advantage of that and ask me one question, we can do that. As a former hedge funder, or maybe still a hedge funder myself, still very much appreciate you know, you talk to a lot of people uh, in the financial community, particularly on the East Coast. I mean, what uh, you know, the people say, what I read is that the bit trade is, has, has been a very crowded trade, particularly, of course, that was true during the, the grayscale premium days. Maybe that's not as exactly the case now. But what's your, uh, what's your um, sense of what's uh, in, in the New York financial community will evolve, how that will evolve over the next 12 to 24 months? A little background, like I was pretty much a, a pretty hardcore like Bitcoin maxi for a long time, right? Got into the space in 2015 when I was living in Budapest, Hungary, really tied into the folks who were living out there and they lived under the Soviet regime, got into Bitcoin, really loved Bitcoin for several years, still really love Bitcoin. Most of my assets are in Bitcoin still. I will say the the trade that we are seeing more than even the Bitcoin trade right now is you have very institutional folks and even some RIAs and financial advisors who are looking at DeFi and looking at things like the, the Bitwise DeFi Trust and uh, the Grayscale DeFi Trust and I don't know the specific names and even doing things like trading on Uniswap, which when I got into the industry, it was ludicrous to even think that institutional folks would buy Bitcoin. And a year ago during DeFi summer, it was ludicrous to think that institutions would ever buy DeFi, uh, things like Uniswap and Aave and Compound.
but we're seeing it. And not only are they buying the tokens, they are using the platforms. And so you have you have folks like Uniswap becoming a little more regulated, delisting tokens on the front end. You have folks like Aave rolling out Aave Pro, which has the KYC element to it. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. I think uh, you know for me that the the as an from an investment standpoint, sort of collecting a, a an eight percent coupon as attractive as that is in this environment. If you're a bond trader, isn't that exciting? Think about the the median annual return on Bitcoin and crypto in general, right? But obviously the tokens ha- have done really well, and and I think what's what's uh, what's especially interesting for, for putting on my think tanker hat, my policy hat, is how uh, the decentralized exchanges impact uh, governments can can make it hard for you to convert fiat usd to crypto if they want to but once you've once you've converted your your into crypto and you can use decentralized exchanges uh, that is a, a different world out there and anyone who has played around with decentralized exchanges has um has appreciated the power of that technology and, and how it will grow. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to also just the the pitch for folks who aren't familiar with the space. To pitch Bitcoin to someone, pitch might be the wrong word, but you start getting into inflation, you start getting into the downfall of the US monetary system, and you can kind of go down this path that you know makes it feel like I'm wearing a tin hat sometimes. But the pitch for DeFi oftentimes is, you know, our entire financial system runs on infrastructure with Cobalt and Swift that's been around since the early 1970s. So over time, there's always just been an improvement to financial technology. And this is just an extension of the improvement to financial technology. It's financial innovation. Now, for those listening who aren't as familiar with DeFi, it's um, it's a lot more risky than Bitcoin. I don't want pe- people to go park their money with a you know, with, with these DeFi tokens, it's incredibly risky. Um, and I have most of my, my assets with Bitcoin in Bitcoin still, but I will say it's tough to argue that things like Uniswap and Aave and Compound aren't at least a little bit interesting. So anyways, Ovik, this has been fascinating. As always, enjoy our conversations. Me too. Folks can find you obviously on Twitter. You have the rare uh, first name only on Twitter, just at A-V-I-K. And so Ovik, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Jason. All right, take care.